0: Well, good morning, Anthem. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Uh, Welcome to the uh, Anthem Christmas special. You know it's special because I'm wearing a suit. Uh, I don't wear suits often, but it is the Christmas especial. So uh, it's good to see you. Uh, If you're visiting us for the first time today, I just want to say it's an honor that you've, you've chosen to do so. So um, hopefully today. Uh, we don't want anything from you. We want something for you. We want you to know the joy and the life that is in Jesus Christ. And so uh, this morning as as we, we jump in, I just, man, I, just, I love I love the Christmas season. And I'm kind of rediscovering it. Maybe it's because of 2020, right, that I'm just like, oh, please give us the holiday season. Uh, but there's, it's been fun because uh, this year my kids are age two, up to seven. We have three kids. And uh, this is kind of the first year where they're old enough to do like family movie nights, watch some of the, the Christmas classics. So this year we've been doing all the Home Alone movies, which if you didn't know, they're Christmas classics, right? Uh, and uh, the, other, the other night, my uh, my daughter, she's seven, uh, her room was dark and I was going there and I read her stories at night. And I, I kind of, I stepped over the baby gate and I just stepped down and it was like crunch. And just this shooting pain, like a thousand tiny gnomes holding daggers, like shot up through the bottom of my foot. And she had, I tried the light, she put all these cars down in Legos, and she, she jumps up around the bed. She's like, gotcha, right? <laughs> She's like, Merry Christmas. And I was like, this is not what I was going for with uh, watching the Christmas specials. Uh, like, Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. Uh, if you know Home Alone, you know that one. Uh, but um, one of the things, it's just fun to see this year, the joy of, of Christmas, the wonder of Christmas through their eyes. And, and I, 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 a few years ago, well, actually, what I should say first is, you know, one of the things I've been realizing as, I guess you could say, as an adult is I, I tend to be kind of cynical towards this just uninhibited joy that my kids have. And I don't, again, I don't know if it's 2020 or, or what it is, but, but there's something at some point along the line in life, even though we, we desire there's something that resonates within us that desire for joy, for, for wonder that, that knows in, in, in a sense that we 're made for it that so there 's something in me though that 's kind of cynical towards it It's like is that really possible? Maybe fleeting moments of joy, but is it really possible to have a joy that, that lasts to have a, a, a true joy and a few years ago, I remember I was our, our third child she 's two now, but she was just born and about two months old, and I was trying to get a, a picture of her. Because um, she just had this joy. And I was like, you can put up the, the picture. This is Claire, our youngest, right? Everyone loves a picture of a baby, right? No one's like, boo, right? Uh, but this is Claire. And I remember just looking into her eyes and looking into her face and just being just stunned, captivated. And, and in that moment, just this, this sense that this yearning that I had deep within me. But I was like, I, I want to have that kind of joy. When in life did, did we stop having that kind of joy? Where, where it just seems like every time there's joy, it's just like, well, that's, that's just kind of the sentimental idea. It's nice when you get it, it's just for the holidays, but you know, when all the eggnog's kind of gone and the presents are unwrapped and whatnot, then you, you go back to reality. But here's the thing. What Christmas promises is not just gifts. It doesn't just promise good times with the family. It, sure, those things are nice. What Christmas promises is that there actually is a joy that's entered the world that can't be taken away that there is a joy that, we, that, has, that has entered the world. The floodgates have been opened, and joy has entered the world. And so what I want to talk about tonight, traditionally Advent, the third week of Advent is um, actually joy is the theme. And so what I want to look at today is how do we find lasting joy? How do we find lasting joy? And what we're going to look at first is why lasting joy is possible. Second, what keeps us from joy that lasts? And third, the secret to finding joy that last. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we, I thank you, Lord, that in this birth narrative, a story that many of us have heard of many, many times, Lord, that there are details here that point to the joy that you've made available for us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I, I ask that you would you would captivate our hearts. Lord, this is not something I can do. This is not something any of us can gin up in ourselves. It's not anything that holiday music, anything can can accomplish to give us a joy that is just not of this world, just that deep, profound joy that we're seeking. But it comes from you. And so, Lord, would you do this morning what I can't do, what none of us can do, but, Lord, would you just open our eyes, open our, our souls to see Jesus and to see the the core of the gospel, of the message, of the life that you've given us in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. Sorry, I forgot to tell you that. Um, gospel of Matthew, looking at some of the birth narrative. And uh, here's what, how Matthew starts. I, I want to start at the first verse, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. It starts with a loaded statement. Here's what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of Abraham. Now, why does it open this way? It, it's interesting, the, uh, the, the, the phrasing, the, the, the book of the genealogy, is, is actually, uh, it comes from the, uh, if you go from the Hebrew Bible into the, the Greek Bible in the New Testament, it's the same word for essentially the book of Genesis. It's the same phrase. So we open here with essentially, you could read it like this, the beginning, in the beginning of, here I lost my place here, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, that the beginning of the story, and what, why is this happening? Why is it saying it like this is just, just kind of a throwaway title at the, the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and we just, okay, that's a nice idea, let's move on. It, what's happening here is Matthew is saying, until you can know the significance and truly understand the depth of the Christmas story, you have to understand the story that came before it. And so he points back to, this is alluding very specifically back to the book of Genesis. To the very beginning, you go back to Genesis 1, one, when God created the heavens and the earth. And he's going back to that, and he's saying that there is specifically something now that was lost back at, at, at that time of that original creation, that was lost, that now is being recreated, rediscovered, renewed, restored in Jesus Christ. See, and I'm going to go, let me come back to this, and before time began, back at the beginning of Genesis, is it just simply telling a story about a God who created a world and so we know how it works and we can kind of get our ducks in an order logically and understand creation? Is it just that or is there more to it? And I think there is more to what's going on there, which is that before time began, what God is doing is he's not just creating a world because God was bored or God needed someone to affirm him. He's like, I'm kind of lonely here, so let's make some people, right? Sometimes we think that way or we just we have these assumptions, but the reason why God created the world is that he was, from eternity past, joyful in and of himself. He had life in and of himself. See, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God had perfect delight and joy and love within himself. And, and what happened was because of that love and that delight, because just like, a, like an artist, when, when an artist falls in love and wants to express that love or wants to express beauty, what the artist does is the artist takes a canvas and then expresses it on that canvas. And you could think of the cosmos, all of creation in that way, that God created the cosmos, and it was a way of painting a picture of his glory. This is why Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God That everything in creation is something that says, I am like this. I am beautiful like this. I'm profound like this. I'm deep like this. I'm significant like this. I'm loving like this. I'm joyful like this. And see, why that matters is because then God placed us in creation. And he placed us in creation with a unique capacity made in his image to relate to him. And what that means is that we were made to be in relationship with God and to find our joy, the same joy that he has within himself, that we're invited into it. And, and as we would experience that joy and we would worship God and delight in God and live lives that were just filled with his, his joy, that what would happen is we would take all of creation, we would, we would expand it, and we'd have kids and we would with the arts and justice and whatnot, and we would spread that glory throughout the earth and that joy. See, in other words, we were made from, from joy for joy. We were made from everlasting joy for everlasting joy. And I know some of it recently I've kind of gone on this. I've, I've talked about that before, kind of before you've heard the, kind of that spiel. And, and here's the thing. I want, I want you to get the significance of it Be, because what that means is that joy is not, we, we tend to f- approach joy kind of post-hallmark, Right? Like Hallmark movies, we watch them and they're like, oh, joy is just a sentimental thing. It's just this emotional response to something. As if once all of the things in life are are good and ordered and kind of lined up and I have kind of this cathartic moment, there's joy. And so joy is dependent upon our circumstances. Joy is just kind of this, this ideal that we aim for. But what is joy? And what I'm saying is joy is not just some idea, it's not just some fleeting emotion, but joy is weaved into the very fabric of the universe. And you and I, the reason why we so deeply yearn for joy is not just because there's some chemical reaction going on within us. It's, it's not just because we just long for better, happier days. The reason why it's not just isolated to one kind of nation or one, uh, one tribe or one culture, but it's universal throughout humanity. The reason why we all long for joy is because it is weaved into creation, and we are made for it. Of course, the problem is that we have this yearning for joy because we're not experiencing it. Or, or at least we're not experiencing it to the fullness that we should be experiencing it. And, we, and, so, and why is that? Because also the Bible story continues... In Genesis, in Genesis 3, that there's a fall. I know, I know some of you might be like, I haven't been in church for a while, but I'm pretty sure, pretty universally, we're still at a place culturally where everyone's like, yeah, I've heard of the fall thing, the whole Adam and Eve in the garden. Here, here's how, don't just think about that as like God made up some arbitrary rules. What's happening there is they're fundamentally saying that we're going to find life apart from you. And we're going to find life in this creation. And, and see, what happens there is fundamentally what, what the, re, the, the real heart of the fall is humanity. Sin is humanity trying to find life in anything other than God. And what God wants is he doesn't want his creatures. He says, you're designed to know life in me, in relationship with me. And what happens is when we turn our back and we go find it elsewhere, it eclipses our ability to experience God's, who God is in our life. And so that's how we've fallen. We've walked away from God in that sense So we're not experiencing the joy and the life that is in him. And this is why Matthew, I'm not going to obviously have time to teach it, Immediately, he goes into a genealogy. He goes into a genealogy that reads like a tragedy. The tragedy of Israel, the tragedy of the people of God, the tragedy of humanity, of every nation, every person in the history of mankind. And it tells these little scenes where it captures this reality of what happens when we look for life apart from God. And and just like it's, it's interesting, it's like, why did he start with the genealogy? Why did he do that? Well, it's significant. And here's why it's significant, because every genealogy, just like in the Old Testament, immediately once there was a fall, there was a genealogy that was introduced, and over and over again, there'd be these genealogies in the Old Testament. The point of the genealogies was to emphasize that it was generation that died, then there was death, upon death, upon death, upon death, pages. In other words, this is not the way it's supposed to be. In other words, now something has entered into the world, sin and death, and it's separated us from God. It's why we're not experiencing joy. Now, every genealogy in the Bible does that to emphasize death from the time in the Old Testament until then we get to this one, because this one ends differently. It ends with the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the reason why that's significant is because what's happening here is it's saying this is a new Genesis. This is a new reality that is now broken into the world. That the one who is joy incarnate. The very God of the universe who is joy, he has now come back into the world that had been separated from him, and he's coming back into the world to restore what had been lost. In other words, that's why then it goes on to say that he is Emmanuel, he is God with us, because the story of Christmas is not just about some nice sentimental story about a baby being born and him teaching us a bunch of good moral principles. The story of Christmas is telling us that the joy that our heart longs for, the glory that our heart longs for, the beauty that our heart longs for, the truth that our heart longs for has come incarnate in Jesus Christ. That God now is with us and just like in what we lost in that original Genesis story can now be restored in him. Now, of course, then I said, we, we don't experience this. So how do we experience that reality? So why, why, is, why is joy possible? Why is lasting joy possible? It's, it's possible because the one who is joy has entered the world, and we can know joy in him. Now, we don't experience it. How do we experience it? Before we can go on to that, we have to look at what keeps us from experiencing that joy that lasts. Flip to chapter 2. It starts this way. It says, Now... Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So it's kind of like we're moving along. Jesus is born. And then it says, now, 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 Jesus is born. Nice things going on over there in the manger. Let me tell you what's going on over here. Pay attention. And it says, there's a statement. It says that it's it's, uh, in the days of Herod the king. Now, it's interesting when they say that because if you think about it, this is, I would actually read it and I go, wait, this is Jesus' story, right? Like, this is like the birth narrative of Jesus. These are the days of Jesus, right? But it's actually the days of Herod. There's a different kind of king in the world at this time. He was known as Herod the Great. And in fact, to this day, if you go to Israel, you'll see plaques to Herod the Great. He was known as kind of the, the king that, and ruler who brought Israel into kind of what you could say is the kind of pre-modern age with advances in technology, aqueducts, architecture, all kinds of things. He was extremely well-known for all of his successes. At the same time, though, he's, uh, he's a complex figure at best. It, but he's going to illustrate for us what keeps us from joy. Uh, a little background on Herod. He reigned, I think, 37 B.C. down to, to 4 B.C. And, uh, the, by the way, the dating of Jesus' birth here, this is probably about 6 B.C. They got that whole, like, AD B.C. thing off by six years. Uh, but when... Um, so this is about two years from his death. And this is what the uh, historian Josephus says about him. He kind of gives the good and the ugly. He said he was a madman who murdered his own family and a great many rabbis. Okay? <laughs> we're going to get to the greatness part, but first you have to understand there's some, uh, some bad here with it. He's also the evil genius of a Judean nation. So let's give him, he's genius, let's give it credit. He's also an evil genius, right? Prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. Bodyguards number 2,000 at all times. 2,000. I mean, you've got, you probably have a lot of enemies, right? If you've got 2,000 bodyguards. Around you. You probably, if I was walking around with 2,000 bodyguards, you'd probably be like, ah, I think he's insecure about something, right? <laughs> executed, get this, executed several members, including at least one wife, probably more, but sent several wives and children into exile. So it's like kind of like private school, but worse, right? This, this one's my favorite. He was so concerned no one would mourn his death that he commanded a large group of distinguished men to come from Jericho, where he died or come to Jericho where he died, and gave an order that they should be killed at the time of his death so that the displays of grief that he craved would take place. I was like, man, that's brilliant. I never thought about that. Man, when I die, if no one's going to mourn for me, then I'll just kill half the city, and then everyone will be crying. And I'll be like, oh, thanks, guys, you know. Well, obviously, uh, thankfully, it says his children didn't fall through on his wishes, so probably because he sent them all the way to that private school, right? Uh, but then lastly, he's, at the same time, he says he's the greatest builder in Jewish history. So he's, like I kind of think of him as like Herod the Great. He's kind of like, I don't know, like a little bit of, like George Washington with Steve Jobs and like a little bit of, of uh, Charlie Manson, like all rolled into one, right? Like that's Herod the Great, so he's a complex figure. But here's the thing. He had all the power. He had all the applause. He had all the excesses. He had successes. He had all the achievements. He had all the pleasures you could possibly want. He had all the comforts. Yet there was one thing that he didn't have, it seems, which was joy. He should have been the most joyful person in the world. I mean, imagine if, you're, if you were nicknamed, like, everyone in the world was like, hey, who's that over there? And they're like, oh, that's the great. And you're like, oh, okay, me? Yeah, okay, whatever. Like, you would think that guy, he's the one with all the joy, Right. But in fact, it's interesting because in spite of this joy, he seems to have, he is just paralyzed by the fear of a simple baby being born. Look at uh, verses 2 through 3. After the wise men come, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So he's troubled by this baby being born. He's the most powerful man in, the, at that, in that part of the world. He's the most powerful man, most dominant man, most successful man. And he's, all of a sudden, he's like shaking it. His knees are shaking together because there's a baby being born. Why is it? There's, there's a clue here in the text, and it's the star. The star. When he hears about the star, that's when he begins to get fearful. Why the star? Here's the significance of the star. In, uh, shortly before uh, the rain, uh, remember, he began in 37 B.C., there had been what was known as probably the most famous cosmological uh, uh, phenomenon in the ancient world. And that phenomenon was known as Caesar's Comet. At, at the funeral of, of uh, Julius Caesar in 44 B.C., during his funeral, some of you remember Halley's, Halley, uh, Halley's Comet back in like 97? And uh, it was like a comet that stayed up in the sky night after night after night, and it appeared the night of his, his funeral began. And the funeral, of course, would have been like a month long. And, and while the whole time, that comet's in the sky. And here's what happened. Everyone saw it as a sign from the heavens that it was affirming him. It was affirming his successes. It was a, com, confirming that he was, he was a god, essentially. And so they erected temples to him, and they honored him, and they, they even worshipped him. And, and, and even the writers, the poets, they would, they would honor him as a god. And, and here's the thing. At, at, uh, even uh, in the time of Herod, they had coins. Look at the pictures of these coins they would have the picture of the ruler on one side, and then on the other side, they would have like a star or a comet on the other side. And what it was, was it was the idea that yes, you have all your successes. Yes, you have all your military conquests. Yes, you have all these things. But what really matters at the end of the day is are the heavens affirming you? And that is where you will find your joy if you're a ruler. Now, why do I tell you all that? Because this, Herod's response captures a profound truth. What's being set up here in this text is emphasizing a profound truth that joy that we long for can't be found in this world alone. Herod was longing for that kind of heavenly affirmation, he, he was longing for. For that, the idea that the heavens in some way would just smile upon him, that they would affirm him, that they would and that's where he was looking for that sense of joy. See, he had, that's why even in spite of building towers to the heavens, he didn't have joy because the heavens didn't smile down upon him. And here's the thing, it, just like Herod, all of the, the joys that we can find in this world, All the things of this world, even good things, success, pleasure, acclaim, achievements. All of those things, they're not actually supposed to be the place where we find that ultimate joy. They're meant to point us to the truer, deeper, better joy that's found in God alone. It's why, if you think about it, I think we all know this, and you know, I was thinking about just, it's been, what, 30 some odd years since U2 came out with the song, you know, we still haven't found what I'm looking for, right? You all know that song, because you all had like some teenage years where you were angsty and you cried through that song, right? Well, the thing is, there's still a reason that hundreds of thousands of people every year flock to U2 concerts to at the end of the concert end it with this crescendo and crying out with this angst and tears streaming down their face, just crying out, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Now, I imagine even in the midst of that, people are saying, I've got the car, I've got the spouse, I've got the degree, I've got the career, I've got the money, I've got all these things. But why is it that there's still something I haven't found, what I'm actually looking for? In other words, what the Greeks knew, what Herod knew, what was deep inside him was that nothing in this world could actually satisfy. They actually, all those things would only point to the only place where that joy can be satisfied. And it can't be satisfied in things. It can't be satisfied in anything other than the creator. It's it's like a magnet in our hearts that we have a creator who is joy, perfect joy, unadulterated joy. And our hearts this whole life, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless within us until they find their rest in you. And our hearts are restless looking for that joy. nothing in this world can ultimately satisfy. Yes, there are many good things, but those good things aren't meant to be the ultimate joy, the ultimate source. They're meant to point us like a foretaste, something even greater. And see, here's the thing with Herod. That means that in this life, we can't go down the path of Herod. And we can attempt to find that joy, to just stubbornly say, no, that joy that I'm looking for, if I just climb more rung on the corporate ladder, if I just, you know, get one more possession, whatever that newest car is, whatever, you know, I want that newer thing at Christmas, whatever it is that we turn to, for him, it was power and control. But for us, what is it that we look constantly for that thing? If I just get that thing, then I'll have that joy. And what happens is we keep going after it. Herod, it drew him mad. It led him to to destroy in order to get it. And the reality is in our lives, the same thing will drive us mad searching for it. We can either go that way and we numb ourselves and blind ourselves to the true source of where that joy can be found. Or we can follow the path that the Magi will take because they're going to have a different response to the star. We We can go to where... The star is pointing to that deeper source of joy. Let's look lastly at the secret to finding the joy that lasts. Look at verse 1. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, when it says behold, one of the things in Greek, it's kind of like it's going, okay, this is happening, but behold, look look over here. In other words, I always, when I read behold in a text, I almost insert like looky, looky, like, right? Like look over here. Look at who these guys are who just entered the story. Now, it's translated in the English as wise men. And again, if you've just because we're in, the Western, in Western civilization, we've all heard of the wise men, right? And uh, at the same time, it's wise men. Sometimes it's, it's magi. And the, the Greek word is just uh, magoi, which is just transliterated as magi. And it's translated different ways because we don't really actually, they're kind of mysterious. We, we don't know a lot about these guys. A lot of details aren't given in the text. But here's what we do know. We do know that these were men who were essentially uh, practiced divination, they were a pagan priest. And, and they, they practiced divination, and they practiced kind of the black arts, right? And they were, you know, cutting open animals and, like, looking at, oh, their liver says that this is going to happen next month, right? But what's happened, and here's the other thing. Ironically, I, I didn't have time to go into this, can't really unpack it, but ironically, they're most for almost for certain, they're from Babylon, And back in chapter 1, at the middle of the genealogy, the place where Israel, kind of the climax of them being kind of their life, their joy with God, and kind of being separated from God, is them being sent into exile where? Babylon. In other words, in Matthew's gospel, it is the picture of when we try to find joy outside of God and the resulting spiritual death that we experience. And these men are people who have been, they've been searching for God their whole life. They're searching for that joy. There's like that magnet pulling them and they're trying to do whatever they can, all the different uh, uh, acts of divination and whatnot that they know of in the world to try to find God. They hunger for God. And yet they haven't been able to find him. And what this is saying, the reason why the Magi are included, because you go, why did he include pagan priests to come to worship Jesus? Because that's the point. That we all have spent our lives worshiping and turning to things, just trying to satisfy that hunger, just trying to find that source of joy. We, like the Magi, are are far from God. We're off in that exile. We're off in that other place where we, we don't know. We're going, God, if you're out there, how can I know you? And what happens is God says, here's how. And he gives them a star. And that star is going to point them to two truths of how we can find joy. And here's how they found it. First, lasting joy is found in God's delight in himself. See, they had a completely different response to the star. In fact, uh, verse 2, it says that they followed, there was a star that arose in the east. If you, if you look at the language of it, it's actually kind of interesting. It arose in the east, and then when you get down, down to verse 9, it says, and until it came to rest over the place of where the child was. So the idea is, wait, stars don't move in the sky. Most scholars now agree that we're pretty certain, we even know which one it was, um, that the Greek term for star is actually kind of ambiguous, and it can mean essentially star or comet, and, and most now agree because even in verse 16, it says that Herod killed, was trying to kill all those, the male-born children under two years of age. Why would he do that? Because that star had been in the sky probably for at least a year and a half to two years. In other words, this is more likely a comet than it was a star. And the Magi had started in Babylon, and they had journeyed all the way to, to Jerusalem. And they finally found, they saw this star setting, and they told, and, and Herod heard about they were coming. And, other, and then what happened? Was they're looking, and they're going, God is going to show us what, we know somehow this is showing us who God is, and he's, God's even using the... the uh, the kind of celestial studies and astrology of these, of these pagan nations, and he's drawing them to himself. And what happens is all of a sudden they come through this dark desert and they can't see anything. And then there's just this, this comet pointing down on the manger as if God and all of creation, here comes that joy that existed before the creation of the world, that joy that put creation together, that joy that is in your hearts God brought all of creation together to say, this one, the one right here, he is the one you've been looking for. And when they come upon it, they realize this is the one our hearts have been looking for. And see, it's not just that, again, it's not just they come up and they find a baby and they go, well, that's cute. That's a nice story. But we see in the next chapter exactly what the significance of this is. Because they realize that they're encountering a God who is completely different than any of the gods of the ancient Near East. Any other God in the known world, and I would say this dynamic is different than any other God in known religion. And it is this. Because we see in the next verse when Jesus is grown and he begins his public ministry, there's this scene in Matthew 3 where we see that joy within the Godhead where Jesus is being baptized, and it says that when he's baptized, he comes out of the water, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove. So we have Jesus being baptized, the son of God. We have the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, the father said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. See, what's happening here is we see the God who is joy entering the world. And just like he did at his birth with that comment, now with the spirit, he's saying, this is the one. This is the one who you have looked to for joy. He is joy incarnate. And the message of Christmas is that he has entered the world for the joy set before him so that you would know his joy. The Son of God is inviting you, just like he invited the Magi, to follow to where the heavens are pointing. Now, it's not just an invitation, though. It's also the lasting joy can be ours in Jesus. How? How can we actually have that joy? It's not just an invitation, but we can actually come to that joy. Look at verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And get this, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, Jesus, it says, is the rightful ruler of the world. He's come into the world because he was the one. I love how that video before we started, started off the whole morning, I didn't, know, I didn't really watch it before. I was like, oh, it's such a picture, perfect picture because we think the story of Jesus begins at Christmas. The story of Jesus didn't begin at Christmas. The story of Jesus began back with that supernova that exploded in creation. It's, it even went farther back, eternally distant into the past. And and so he is the rightful ruler of the world, and he comes with joy to rule the world in joy again. But he doesn't come to us like a ruler like Herod, just to hammer us down and hammer us in the shape, but he comes to us as a shepherd. Not a king like Herod who succeeded by military conquest. Jesus does so by heart conquest. It says in John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Not a king like Herod who rules through silencing, but a king who was silent as he bore our sins. Isaiah 53, 7. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus rules as a shepherd. He gives his life for his flock so that they would have life in him. And here's the thing, Jesus comes to give his life. Some of you have just heard this narrative, perhaps, that church, Christianity, it's just about essentially some despot up there who just kind of hammers people into shape and just get in line, behave this way, and that's all you've ever heard. But Christianity doesn't say that the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ is not that if you obey and you get your you know, nose clean, however you want to put it, you get it all together, then God might like you then God might accept you. Instead, what the gospel says is that Jesus Christ died on your behalf, that he set his affection upon you. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Believe in him. He has set his affection upon you. Therefore, now go and obey. In other words, until you know his joy, you cannot live out a life of joy. And Jesus says, if you will come to me, I'm inviting you to myself. If you come to me, I will become one with you. And here's the profound reality that we all need. Because remember, Herod sought that affirmation from heaven, that joyful, that joy from heaven. Jesus had that joy from heaven from his father. And here's the thing. When you become one with Jesus Christ, it means that the same words that were said of Jesus, my son and you, I am well pleased, can be said of you to know that the Father in heaven looks upon you and says, you are my child. With you I am well pleased because you are one with my son. That is the message of the gospel. And I know that in some ways it's like, maybe that sounds a little mystical. But in closing, this this really resonates with something that is a dynamic that's, again, hardwired into our nature. I think we have the image of God stamped on us so deeply that this is why these things resonate with us. When uh, I took that picture originally of Clara, uh, I I actually, I I couldn't find them, but I have like 30 pictures where she's like bawling uh, and I couldn't get her to smile right? She's bouncing on my knee for a long time. And, she's, ah. and then I was like, I'm going to get a picture of this. And I like try to take a picture. And as soon as I take a picture, she's like, ah! And I was like, what is, what is, I'm not trying to like capture your soul in this, like, you know. And, and so she's just screaming, and I couldn't get a picture. I was like, why can't I get a good picture of her? And I, I thought, what is wrong? It's just, because, and here's what I realized. I realized that I assumed something. I realized that I assumed that her joy was just something that just kind of innately came out of her, that she just kind of revved it up inside of her, and that it would come out, and so I was just trying to capture this joy, and what I realized was it wasn't just coming out of her. It was a response to me. It was a response to her father's delight in her. It was a response to my gaze. It was a response face-to-face, seeing me delighting in her, and as I was bouncing her, and she's looking into my eyes, and I'm delighting in her, and then she's joyful as a response. But then, of course, when I'm taking the camera, what's happening is I'm, I'm blocking my, the gaze, my gaze, and, and my, my eyes, and, 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 and I'm eclipsing it. And it was lost, and that joy was lost. You see, we are made for the gaze of the Father. Your deepest, most lasting joy that cannot be taken away is meant to be through experiencing Just like that star from heaven, that voice from heaven saying, with you I am well pleased. You are mine. You are my child. And here's the thing, nothing in the world can take that away. Nothing. And yet, often like Herod, we we have things in our life that we use to to numb ourselves, that that block that gaze of God from hearing his voice. The, the, The different things that we do in our life just through achievement, through through pleasure, through seeking comforts. We do these things because we just, we think for some reason, okay, joy is just not a reality that can be found. We grow cynical and so it's like, I'm just going to numb myself. I'm going to bury that, that, that desire and maybe every now and then I'll just be surprised by it coming out. But what God is saying is, no, you can know that joy despite whatever is going on in your life. You are made from joy for joy. You are made from eternal, everlasting joy to know. Everlasting joy. So don't, like Herod, this Christmas season, just use the season to, for a time, just try to get like some joy that will be fleeting. Enjoy it, but at the same time, use those things to point you to what your heart is crying out to you, which is that there's a better, a deeper joy that's found in Jesus Christ. We are made, what Christmas tells us is that you, I, we were made to find a lasting joy in God. So this Christmas, follow the path of the Magi. Look to the one the heavens are delighting in. Look to Christ and find lasting joy in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. God, that you have made lasting joy available to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for every individual in this room. Lord, there's none of us in here who perfectly experience your joy. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, Lord, you would open our eyes. You would help us to see Christ. You would help us to see the joy that is has found him. The joy that is found in being one with him and hearing that voice. And you, I am well pleased. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who's just hearing this for the first time, Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would call them, you would speak to them, that, Lord, you would draw them near to Christ. Lord, would you give us more of him? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.